I'm Helen Marshall, and this is the Diary of a CLO. I hope no one's listening, but if you are, definitely share it. Erica is the co-founder of Quantum Rise, and you'll often find her keynote speaking at learning and education conferences and events. Erica's area of specialism is the future of work and skills, digital learning, and challenging the quality of our education systems. In this episode, we dig into AI, as Erica is passionate about driving innovation and creating spaces for communities to learn together. As host of AI for the Average Joe podcast, Erica is trying to demystify AI for L&D. We chat about all of that and more. Enjoy. Erica, hi, and welcome to Diary of a CLO. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm good, Helen, and it's fabulous to be here. I've been keeping tracks on what you do on the podcast for a wee while, so I'm I'm pleased that I can be part of it. And likewise as well, because I know you've got a fabulous podcast as well, which we'll touch on (laughs) as we go through the conversation too. But just to, uh, to the benefit of our listeners, if you just give me a bit of a breakdown of who you are, what you do, what your background is, and, and how you've got to where you are now. Yeah, cool. Okay. So I'm the co-founder and business director of Quantum Rise Talent Group. I'm also a professional speaker. My background is 20 years corporate learning and development with some of the UK's largest brands, such as um, British Gas, Virgin, Specsavers and LV. So I, I cut my teeth early days on recruitment and then fell into L&D as a lot of us folk do. And then I've been lucky enough to have some amazing opportunities and some great organisations, leading L&D, early careers, talent, leadership development and apprenticeships across those organisations. And then I kind of came to my late 30s, early 40s and uh, the uh, that voice that I always had in the back of my head saying, go on, go and do it yourself, go, go and work for yourself just became a bit too much for me to ignore. And then just before the pandemic, I left Specsavers and set up my first company, Welcome to Learning Limited, which was a, uh, a virtual learning and two minute training video company. And then that did really well. And then about a year and a half later, I went into business with my current business partner, uh, Hayley Bird, and we are the co-founders of Quantum Rise. Quantum Rise, we very much position ourselves with our clients is digital learning best practice, whether that's live, virtual, online, whether that's e-learning, digital content. More recently, over the last 12 months, following my TEDx talk, AI future skills, and I'm also a LinkedIn learning instructor as well. So a lot of the content I do for LinkedIn is around helping managers to build future skills requirements, such as learning agility and critical thinking. And of course, using uh, digital ethics and AI for non-experts in their team. Lots of stuff to do. (laughs) All sounds brilliant. You must therefore have a real kind of ear to the ground in terms of what's going on across the L&D space at the moment. What kind of trends are you seeing come out of those conversations you're having with people? Yeah, and I guess it depends on what part of kind of education and learning you're talking to, really, isn't it? And and the people in there. So definitely seeing a curiosity when we say things like AI and future skills and organisations hearing we're going to automate and we're going to level up people's jobs and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But there's there's a bit of paralysis around this at the moment of people all have good intent in terms of they know what they think they should doing which actually drives what I call a little bit of 
AI shame and AI guilt with people because they think, oh God, is everybody else doing it other than me? Which by the way, if you're thinking that, no, they're not. So please don't worry. It just feels like when we say future skills or we say AI or we say workforce of the future or any of those kind of bandy corporate OD terms that we that we use, I think it can either excite people or scare people off. And like anything, you've got a bell curve where you've got your first followers and you've got your kind of people that never quite get there and everybody else sits in the middle, don't they? And all of those people, even tech companies that, that are our biggest clients are still not in the space where they can articulate what does AI mean to the strategy in the next 12 months, let alone the next three to five years, because it's, it's just moving so quickly, but people don't know how to ground it. So this definitely end of last year, and I'm sensing it already this year is a bit of kind of I don't want to say AI fatigue already, but I think that AI fatigue might be there because people don't quite know what to do with it yet. And then what does that mean to my management and leadership programs, my digital learning, my learning platforms and looking to vendors and looking to suppliers for that insight, which puts us in a really good position from that perspective, but also can be quite frustrating as well, because actually you're leading the conversation, which might actually take a bit longer for us as vendors and suppliers to what we might actually want. So I don't know if that's similar at Thrive in some of the stuff you guys are picking up. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit chicken and egg, isn't it? Who leads that conversation first? So there's L&D teams that you're dealing with on a daily basis that want insight and inspiration and ideas, but then the kind of practical product development side of stuff takes a little bit longer and a little bit more thought. And there's that kind of balance between experimentation and then pivoting and doing something differently and and adapting in that way. And and actually, I think I'd be quite keen to hear your thoughts on that in terms of, is there a balance or should there be a balance between that individual experimentation of using things like chat GPT or other kind of large language models and an organization driving an AI strategy and where do those two kind of things meet? I've had a lot of conversations particularly in the higher education space with universities for example. The interesting stuff is you see some really innovative lecturers and professors who have just introduced GPT into their sessions with learners And they're encouraging learners to use GPT to challenge the theory and the content that's being taught on the higher level apprenticeship, whether that's a degree or diploma or master's or whatever that might be. That's kind of far and few between. There's not a silver bullet for this, is there? Because one hand, you've got to have your ethics and integrity policy and be clear, like you can't reprimand people in the workforce for doing stuff on generative AI that you don't want them to do, like sharing certain information, things like that, if you haven't been clear in terms of what the behavioural framework looks like. But on the flip side, you don't want to stifle great teaching and learning and innovation where you have got these professors and lecturers who are, you know, the first thing they ask their their, their students to do is to log into ChatGPT and critically analyse last week's assignment. It levels up the conversation that we hear a lot in this space around cheating and plagiarism and is AI the right thing to use, which you could say defaults into the governance and the how do we use it. But actually, if you get people excited in the right way, that almost kind of elevates everything anyway. So it's I think you've got to kind of find a balance that works for your culture and organisation, but also rather than lean into the policy procedure you cannot use, lean into the what's actually happening on the grounds and sample and learn from these amazing people 
that are getting great results from students and learners and delegates in their sessions by not even making it a thing. It's just another tool that we use. And sometimes I, you know, I hear quite a lot of pushback from things like universities or L&D, especially when it comes to things like written assessment stuff. You know, they could just be taking it from ChatGPT or they could be doing and it's like, well, they could just be taking stuff from Google or they could be just taking stuff from books. So the problem isn't AI. The problem is ethics and learning culture and seeing value in critical thinking and growth rather than defaulting to the negative. So I think it's it's easy for us to default to the negative. But at the moment, we've got a really good opportunity to to innovate and not and not be stifled by that. So mm, there's almost like that wariness around not fully understanding everything about AI or ChatGPT in this instance. So it makes people kind of close off and think that's too risky. I don't know enough about that. So we just can't really go there. We're seeing that in, I feel like the larger, maybe financial institutions within the world, they're saying, no, can't do that. Let's let's not do that. Whereas the smaller businesses are a bit more, maybe taking that more experimental approach and maybe a bit, maybe can think a bit faster and bring those new ideas and new concepts to the table potentially more easily. Yeah, but that's where the customer footfall will go because it will be a better user experience ultimately rather than, I mean, you see that already when I set up my first business, I asked a kind of a bunch of people like, what bank do you use? What business banking? And most people said NatWest at the time because NatWest was pitching itself as, you know, the, the bank for the small business and whatever. And then I got in touch with the contact for NatWest and the message came back that, yeah, it would take about two weeks to set up your account and you need to submit this, this and this. And then you need to go online. Then you need to go into a branch to verify your ID. And I was like, I need a business account now, not in two weeks time. And then someone said, oh, have you tried Starling? And within two hours, because of a mini video that I submitted on my phone and the application on the app and a link to company's house to make sure my company actually existed, my business bank account was up within two hours. So, and that's even without the dawn of generative AI and just using flexible technology. So I think the big organizations that they've got to be careful about this wariness because you're going you're gonna to lose market share and you're going to lose customer buy-in and that lack of trust will stifle agility and nimbleness and user experience. And, and this is, I guess, applicable for any industry, not just fintech, but actually you've got to be the starling rather than the NatWest, right? In this new kind of brave new world, as it were. Yeah, it brings interesting questions around kind of where does innovation happen within business as well? Because in those businesses I just mentioned, like the larger fintech companies, it seems quite restricted to particular maybe R&D departments. Whereas what I also hear is that innovation is more successful and happens more successfully within businesses who leverage stuff that's happening across their business as well. So that for me is where innovation really does happen is utilizing what's going on on the ground essentially to to drive broader business strategy is in alignment so yeah it'll be interesting to see what does happen there and, and how maybe their products and services do change or whether there's examples of where it happens more at a ground level rather than being kind of closed off and or fenced off or ring fenced within them and that goes back to your skill set and your mindset piece doesn't it it's like if we think about the human in the human digital relationship <laughs> 
you know, kind of step away from the, the AI is going to take your job or, you know, what does that mean to the future of my role and whatever. Actually, we've got such a good opportunity now of what I call human distinctive skills to just get rid of the parts of the job that we all hate get that automated and we've all got those parts of the jobs whether it's the numbers or the report writing or whatever that might be and actually really level up and explore some exciting stuff in our roles that we love doing and do more of that and really not forget that human element it's easy to do right yeah and that's I mean it's so important it's something that we speak about a lot and we we chatted about this off air as well that kind of bringing it back to the human at the core of everything that you do and I think that idea of human distinctive skills is really good because you can then like you say there's there's this argument around kind of AI being able to make you more productive and obviously drive the bottom line of the business but ultimately if you can take away those more manual things those things that you can utilize and leverage AI for but do things that bring you joy as a human being you're therefore going to be even more productive because you're more engrossed in what you're doing, but also you potentially be more innovative. You'll have a higher level of well-being and that will, as we know, drive business performance as well. So I think there's a real opportunity there if you're coming back to what actually drives you as a human and how do I leverage AI in order to make that successful for me? I think that's where there's a real opportunity. Yeah. And not just in our jobs and our professional life, but we run some workshops using, you know, ChatGPT and I get people to ask them to do a task using ChatGPT after they've downloaded it on their phone. And that kind of just blows their mind in itself. And then I say, well, you know, hands up who did a work task for that, that kind of example. And most people put their hand up because they just assume it's work. And I say, right, now I want you to think of a personal thing that, you know, a problem or a task or whatever it might be that, ChatGPT can help you with and here's some examples one being you're getting home tonight and you look in the fridge and there's a load of random ingredients and you don't know what to make for dinner ask ChatGPT to come up for you know create a recipe for you or you know the other one just pre-Christmas was ask ChatGPT you know, give it a scenario I've got the, uh, the mother-in-law from hell she has everything I never know what to buy for Christmas give me some options of what I could buy the mother-in-law for Christmas And once you start that kind of creative kind of light bulb, grey matter crunching, you can hear the words, you know, the cogs going in people's heads. For me, that's where you start to get the buy-in and that, oh, this is different. This isn't just another Google, as it, you know, might be. Once you get that, what's it mean? How does it make me and my own life a little bit easier, even if just a thought partner or something like that? That's where I think the magic happens. How do you think you can encourage that level of creativity or creative thinking when it comes to utilising chat GPT or other similar things? Because it's thinking creatively can be quite hard for some people. Yeah. So we do it in kind of a workshop format at the moment because we find that when people get into it, because it is so new and different, every contribution from people either on a virtual table or if we're doing something in person people like build on the idea really quickly and it's really exciting to watch because it's just so new for everybody and it's real collaborative learning with people kind of thinking oh that's a great idea and then I could do this and then and you just see the whole thing kind of being created and it's exciting to watch as a facilitator I think at the moment you know I've been on some all party parliamentary groups and some forums and things like that recently where you get people asking questions like MPs 
asking things like, how can we accelerate rollout of AI skills in the country? And I think we should do this through micro accreditation of digital online learning. And, and one of the MPs actually asked me that. And my response was, that will work for a certain percentage of the population. So if you're thinking of people like apprentices, graduates, people in corporate organisations, you know, given time, have access to good internet, good learning materials, who are interested in building micro accreditation or whatever it might be. But actually, you've got a big part of the population, whether that's young, old, in the middle, you know, people that have digital poverty, so they don't have access to decent machines and learning and the internet and don't have data for their phones. And actually, you've got a whole group of people like me that, you know, you put me in front of some e-learning and you get about six minutes out of me and then I'm gone. You know, I, I'm too busy thinking about doing something else. So we need to be really empathetic in our ways of engaging people with AI. If it is the most important revolution in human history, you know, which some people are saying this might well be, then we need to do hearts and minds. We can't just say, here's an e-learning pathway that you've got to spend 20 hours on. And actually, by the way, by the time you finish it, it's out of date anyway, because AI's changed so much. Prompting's not going to exist in 12 months. So why are we teaching the average Joe how to prompt? You know, so I'm, this is the agility and the being able to put stuff down and pick it up and put stuff down and pick it up and not see knowledge as power anymore. We can't sit in that space much. Mm, it's really interesting that what you're describing there is like bringing people together to connect as humans to talk about how to utilize tech that is often seen as the I guess the polarity to that so it's quite I suppose quite not refreshing but it's reassuring creative thinking happens in those spaces where people are together and they can lean on each other in a way that ultimately enables them to utilize tech better in their daily lives I think we're guilty and I've certainly been guilty of this forgetting we are people first, workers second. You know, mm. it's really easy to put us in as give us all a number, a payroll number or give us all a, you know, we're a list on a spreadsheet that comes out of an LMS or we're a, a dot on a report or whatever it might be. But, you know, I've led large change initiatives in financial services. And the one thing I've always led with is let's get people together and talk about how they feel about change. Because we all know that as a human race, we're not particularly comfortable around it. And we know we buy into it a little bit more if we can lead the change or we buy into the change rather than being done to. But as organisations and corporates, I think sometimes we forget that. And then suddenly we all roll out a new software system or a, a workforce management system or whatever it might be. And then we wonder why people kick against it or we don't get the full benefit realization of it or people aren't innovative well yeah try it and do different things with it and actually people are like why what's what's in it for me you haven't asked me how I feel about this and I think we're a bit guilty of cutting those corners but I mean there's been so much change as well like on a much broader scale than within particular organizations but but match that with change that happens on a daily basis within single organizations as well then people it's no no surprise that people have that kind of change fatigue how do you think that L&D can approach that in a better way than potentially have been doing historically gosh that's a big question <laughs> What's, what's the lens that I'm going to go through on that one? Let me just have a think. I think we're very good. We're so busy. We're so on the hamster wheel. And this is where I think 
you know, Philippa Hardman's, Dr. Philippa Hardman's talk at World of Learning in October when she talks about, and if you're, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen her work, go and look her up, she's brilliant. She says, we can either keep oiling the L&D machine that doesn't really work and go after the holy grail of ROI that nobody's actually ever achieving and keep making the same mistakes and doing the same problems and wasting the same amount of money. Or we genuinely rip up the rule book and remap out our structures and our deliverables against Workforce 4.0, which is mapping out L&D and OD against what AI is going to do for us. And that is the best piece of thinking I've seen in L&D for quite a long time. And it's a very, when you break it down, it's quite a simple framework. Because what she's saying is we're not going to need designers who are constantly designing the same leadership and management programs time after time after time, or trainers delivering the same training time after time, being knowledge focused rather than skills focused, even to the point of the head of L&D role becoming a AI strategy and skills role, you know. So I think if you're, it's so much easier said than done, isn't it? <laughs> because if I put myself back into corporate operations as the head of L&D, and I was listening to myself now, I think, oh, yeah, he's, you know, it's all right for you to sit there and say, just rip up the rule book and da, 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 you know. So I think we've got to be brave. And whether we do that over a stage period of time, the next, I don't know, two to three years. It's like the whole conversation around the driverless car at the moment, isn't it? We're not ready to get in a car and have AI drive us 200 miles up the road. We don't trust it. But actually, some of us already have AI tech in our cars, like lane assist and sat nav and stuff like that. So we're using technology without even realising it. And the next stage will be, you can have it, I don't know, you know, maybe next year, the year afterwards, you can have it as driverless or you can take controls. You can have a bit of both and then it will go solely driverless, you know, as we as we trust that staging, I think, is really important for people's mindset. So if I was ahead of L&D right now, I would be thinking about, yes, I have to maintain the status quo because we know we do to make sure people can do their jobs and stakeholders are happy and we're seen as added value and da, 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 da. But actually, on the side note, this is my plan to get to AI adoption, you know, and that might be in the first six months. I'm going to focus on learning agility and mindset when it comes to being able to understand where our power sits in L&D. And then I'm going to start, you know, educating stakeholders around what does that mean? And then I'm going to start introducing elements of technology if I'm not doing that already. I think I've probably kind of gone off on a bit of a tangent here, really. (laughs) Back to your question about what we can do. To summarise, we can't do nothing. I think we need to have a plan, really, a stage mm. plan. And I think you've, you've raised several really good points there, but that kind of being realistic about what that looks like. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it sounds great. The ideal of what Philippa Harman's saying is I'd love everyone to just kind of rip up the rule book and, and go off and, and do that. On a realistic level, that's not going to happen. And we know how resistant L&D itself is to change or how long it takes to like oh actually that that is the better way of doing it let's let's do that instead of just continuing on that bandwagon but I think it's it's that kind of thinking kind of in terms of what can be achieved in the future and how do we bring people along on that journey in order to get there and if I definitely feel that's something that suppliers will be able to support L&D teams with as well because you can say well as, as long as you have that broader vision of where we think we want to get to these are the these are the simple steps or smaller steps that you can take in order to to build those bridges and change hearts and minds again along the way as you get there because 
it's so difficult to switch people's habits and thinking and, and ways of doing I mean you just wouldn't be able to do it overnight you wouldn't just be able to say right let's do let's, let's switch up everything because on a practical level that is not just switching your way of thinking it's switching off your whole business's way of thinking and that you know that sort of stuff does take a long time to achieve it does and, and I do a keynote about AI and one of the questions I ask in it and I say oh yeah we do it could do this it could do this. So, so why are we not all doing this already why are we not all already using AI and someone always says trust. It's this trust fear thing that comes out. And actually, as a human race, we know we've been there, done that. We've, you know, we were scared when the calculator came out because thought, we thought it was going to make us all stupid and not be able to have mental calculation. Or we were scared when the printing press came out because we thought all the knowledge would go into books and, we, uh, uh, and it would make us dumb as a nation and we wouldn't be able to teach ourselves. And then robotics in the 80s and PCs in the 70s. So we know we have this journey and we know that people take time to go on that journey and again this is where the, I think the human distinctive skills are so important because it's not just a change journey it's an ability and an opportunity to give people perhaps skills opportunities they never thought they would have in their role or they never thought they were able to achieve you know how do we look at potential in the lens of using tech and AI and because potential no doubt will be very different because we're measuring what success looks like differently for example and how we think about things and then you know of course on media we hear all these horrible things like hollywood going on strike because they're worried about deep fake and their rights of you know if they're used as an extra in the film what's stopping filmmakers superimposing them onto another film as an extra and they don't get paid for those rights and so i think we've got a lot to figure out so you can understand why that distrust is there because the media is always around AI is terrible because of this and AI is terrible for that. And then we've got things like Terminator and Skynet and The Matrix and all the movies where our robot overlords have taken over the world. And we've got such a good opportunity here, not just to build on digital transformation post-pandemic as L&D and talent and HR functions, but also we've, we've got to go to the hearts and minds place. You can't just drop in chat GPT or a process manual or say, hey, we're now using AI as of Monday, half your role is going to be automated and just expect people to go along with it because it's just not how we operate as people. Mm, again, just to come back to your point about trust there, it's, it's a really interesting thing to kind of focus on and, and understand, I guess, from that kind of critical thinking perspective as well. So I know you mentioned that you cover this in your course on LinkedIn is how do you come to trust something more by thinking more critically about it? Is that something you cover or how do you approach it? It's a good question. And actually, I tend to use things because I'm quite an emotional being. Being a business owner is probably the biggest roller coaster ride. I've ever been on and there's times where I need to be a better critical thinker in the moment and I recognize that and, and one of the things that, and I've shared with this with Hayley my business partner she quite likes this technique as well is when you do feel distressed or overwhelmed or worried about what's happening just take yourself to fact court you know what are the facts that I'm dealing with right now whether that's a personal issue whether that's a professional issue 
whether someone's saying you need to be more objective about something or less emotional about something or you've got an emotional reaction to something. Like sometimes I'm like, Erica, let's go to fact court. What do I know that's true about the situation right now? And I think we have to do that when it comes to reactions to tech and, and AI and all the rest of it. What do we know? We know that, you know, there is things like the AI EU regulation that's come in. And we do know that people are having conversations about this. But we do know there's a risk, you know, with AI. We do know there's safeguards in place. So let's be really objective and understand the facts rather than all of the overwhelm and the kind of, I don't know, these kind of these thunderous thoughts that we might have sometimes that are driven by emotion. And that's always heightened during change, isn't it? We, we see that all the time. So, yeah. So, I mean, in, in my LinkedIn course, you know, we do go back to things like the five whys you know, just asking each other why and keep building and getting to that kind of core issue. If you're having an emotional reaction, just ask yourself, what, what's the truth? What are the facts and what are you actually dealing with? And I find that actually really helps with stuff, particularly when you're starting to feel a bit like, oh, my God, the world's changing around me and I don't know what to do. <laughs> I, that, I mean, I think that's really good advice, not only from that tech perspective, but also when you're dealing with things internally within a business, when you're going through a lot of change and there's lots happening, there's almost like that gossip element of Chinese whispers as well about stuff that's happening. But actually, in yeah. that situation, just take yourself back a step and say, well, you know, what information do I have that I can think practically about now? So I think it's really useful advice much more broadly than, than AI. And, and on that note, what are you seeing outside of kind of AI and new kind of new tech advances there that are consistent themes within individuals or businesses that you're working with at the moment? Last year, I initially saw a bit of a bounce back into like everyone back in the office, all training needs to be in person, you know, just kind of that comfort zone element for workforces which was a real shame considering some of the advancements that we'd had seen, particularly post-pandemic. But going back to your point around how people deal with change, I'm just thinking of a big tech firm that we work with. Organisations that have the budget and the nerve to continue to stay hybrid or remote and invest in that best practice, whether that's leadership and management skills, being a hybrid manager or, you know, remote learning or whatever it might be. They've kind of held their nerve and continue to build on that, probably at a slower pace than what we initially saw. So they've gone back and backfilled skills compared to having an emergency response to getting online, as we saw before. Although that has slowed down, I think that's a good thing because it's allowed people mentally and emotionally to catch up with the change that we've seen. What I have seen is, so we work with a number of apprenticeship training providers who, if you know anything about apprenticeships and funding, providers work very, very hard for quite low margins. And there's restrictions around how much money they can make and all this kind of stuff. And I've seen a lot of providers go back to trainers driving around the country and delivering to small groups of people. And, you know, the costs involved with hotels and mileage and spending time on motorways, let alone the well-being impact of being away all the time. And, you know, there's been a, a number of large organisations that have either exited the apprenticeship market or gone under. And I'm not saying that's because they've gone back to in-person learning. But if that's an indicator of how people are thinking at a senior level, rather than invest in good practice online learning, actually, we're just going to ping back to what we were before, then actually, what does that mean for the rest of the strategy in your business? 
I think we're at a space now where people expect the opportunity in the majority, and there's obviously roles that this does lend to, to be able to have a better work-life balance or be able to do the school run or to work part-time or compacted hours or in the evenings or whatever works. And I think if you're not in that space, if you've pinged back and just seen that as a temporary place, I I worry for organisations in that space because the rest of the world has moved on. You're going to lose great talent. You're going to burn people out. And that's probably best case scenario. Worst case scenario, you know, you're not going to be making any money, which means you don't have a business. So, yeah, that's been quite an interesting. I don't know if you've seen anything similar to that. I feel like there's an arrogance with certain brands around the expectation that people just want to work for the brand. So it doesn't matter what kind of condition, not condition is probably the, the wrong word, but what kind of working situation, working setup we we say goes, essentially. So people just want to work for the brand and that doesn't take into account those aspects of well-being flexibility that I know that you that you were just mentioning as well and we're certainly seeing that kind of approach to learning switching at the end of last year certainly and this is going to continue as we go through the year to a more blended approach but also that focus on how do you build human connection and bring people together in a face-to-face way but then the other side of that is how do you then make those experiences equitable for people who can't get into the office who can't come into face-to-face or maybe who were hired remotely and I saw a really um not maybe it wasn't surprising stat from HR Gartner that said that I think only 26% of organizations are seeing that their workforces adhere to the hybrid setup that they've suggested okay so most people are staying at home yeah so in a business that's saying let's you have to come in three days a week they're only seeing 26 percent of people and businesses actually are able to achieve that approach and that tells you a lot about the way that managers and teams are conducting their daily lives in contrast to an organization that's maybe being a bit more authoritarian about their approach to what they think is best for their people and that should be very telling in itself for, for HR practices I think so yeah you definitely touch on on things that are resonating with not only with us as a business and we're seeing with our customers but that I'm reading about more broadly in the industry and Erica just as we we head towards um wrapping up one thing I, I like to ask all my guests is around a piece of advice that you have been given that you like to share with other people to continue that kind of process forward yeah Okay, I firmly subscribe to, I'm going to say this without being cheesy, but it might come across as a bit cheesy. I firmly subscribe to, you make your own luck. You know, you put your own conditions and make the choices in your life that lead to the outcomes that you want, whether that's being really conscious in regards to a goal that you want to achieve, whether that's personal or professional, whatever that might be, or creating the conditions to help you move towards that. And sometimes I think that I'm 42 now. So I've had, they say that kind of you get these revelations in your 40s, don't they? And I I can definitely agree with that. Some of that is about being surrounded by the right people and, and making those choices, which can feel a little bit ruthless sometimes having those people around you that can support you and are genuinely there with the intention of supporting you and enabling you and and vice versa. And I remember as a kid, one of the things, I must have been like upset at school or something, I can't remember what it was. And and one of the things my dad turned around and said was, whatever you do, kiddo, don't let the bastards get you down. And that's always stuck with me. And, And don't let the bastards get you down, for me, has become build the life that you want and don't have people as part of that situation 
that are the bastards that are going to get you down. And I know that's easier said than done sometimes, particularly if you're employed, you can't choose who you're working with. And they say you can't choose your family and all the rest of it. But I think sometimes you've just got to be quite selfish in regards to the choices and the decisions you make based on following your heart, really. And I, you know, I know there's lots of cliches and that sounded a bit cheesy, but no, really good advice. And I think it's a, it's a really good sentiment as well. And, and I'm still waiting for the day. And maybe if I do this podcast long enough that someone will share advice that chat GPT has given them instead of a, a family member. We'll see. If we yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, yeah. It would be interesting if we went and asked chat GP right now, what would you give, uh, give me advice? I don't think it'd be long before people do that. But that's, you know, that's where we can't lose those human distinctive skills, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Erica, thank you so much for, for sharing. And I think we, we could have carried on talking for, for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, look That's forward great. To, to watching your future career as well thanks erica oh thank you so much helen appreciate it take care this podcast is powered by thrive we're a complete learning and skills platform creating modern learning solutions for modern businesses globally check us out